Today's Bible reading comes from Mark chapter 2 and I'll be reading the first 12 verses, verses 1 to 12 from Mark chapter 2. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralysed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. May God bless his word. Thanks, Wendy. Morning, everyone. Morning to the people at home. Don't the lights, I agree, look magnificent. The wedding was wonderful yesterday for Michael and Kelly. I concur with Pastor Charlie's statement how servant-hearted they are to us as a church. And you've heard a couple of people now allude to the fact we nearly couldn't live stream our service this morning because Kelly is often the one who was doing that. So I said to her last week before the wedding, I said, what are we going to do next week? She said, I don't know. (laughs) Of course, as she should. We couldn't get it to work this morning. So guess who we rang? you couldn't pay that couple enough could you and the morning after their wedding we ring them may God forgive you Peter McCullough I don't know if it was Peter ring it was somebody else anyway that's their servant heart isn't it continue to pray for them as they enjoy their honeymoon members meeting this afternoon is We have eight people being nominated for the board and five people, four being proposed for the eldership team and one reappointment. So there are five elders being proposed. And so there is one ballot paper and there's a bit of a process on how we're going to do it. So when you arrive and get your ballot paper, please don't fill it in. Don't vote early. Because there are eight positions, but we can only elect seven. So there's got to be a process, a way of we doing that. So I've got to explain that to you at the members meeting. So... Get your ballot paper and just wait. Because I know last time when we reappointed Pastor David, people got their ballot paper, they voted yes straight away, they put it in the ballot box and they, some left. Because it was fait accompli, but, you know, lots of people stayed as well. So we can't do that today. Because if you, I'll say this and then we'll get on with what I'm supposed to be doing. If you vote seven, uh, eight yeses on the board nomination, because you think, Yes, 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 your vote will be invalid. 
it'll have to be put aside because you can only vote for seven. That's part of the explanation, okay? I'll repeat that this afternoon. Glad you're here. We're not here for the members meeting. That'll be this afternoon. We're here to continue our series on becoming a contagious Christian. And this morning, uh, we're picking a passage, uh, which is a great story, but the passage, in fact, is not quite um, on theme for us, but I'm using that passage to be on our theme. The passage is really about Jesus and who he is and his identity and his power, and we'll certainly come to that. But you could look at the passage also from the point of view of the man who was paralysed, but I'm going to look at the passage primarily uh, for what we learned from it as if we were one of the four friends carrying the paralysed man to Jesus. That's our role, to bring people who are paralysed, people who are affected by sin, to Jesus. What they did is what some of the things that we need to do as well. So, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can be together. I pray for Michael and Kelly too, that you'll bless them today. And in days ahead, give them a great honeymoon and time away together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll be pleased to open our eyes to see truth, to learn more about our Lord Jesus, and to learn more about our responsibilities as we seek to follow and please him. So Lord, teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Connected, committed, creative. That's what the, three, the four friends did. They were connected to somebody else. They were committed to bringing him to Jesus and they had to be creative when they faced some obstacles and issues. That's our heading. So in terms of background, <clears throat> back in Mark chapter 1, um, in verse 21 and verse 29, you'll see that the Lord Jesus has come to Capernaum. He's moved from Nazareth as his hometown. He's now made Capernaum, which is on the top north west corner of sort of of the Sea of Galilee. That's his home base. The Sabbath was there and he did what he always did on the Sabbath. He went to the synagogue and he began to teach. Sabbath day was over. The people came to where he was staying in Capernaum. Where is he staying? The house of Simon and Andrew. Know the story about Simon's mother-in-law? It was that house. Because Jesus is now a house of his own. So he's staying in Simon's house. Now that's significant for where we're going to come to in a moment. That evening after the Sabbath, after the sunset, <clears throat> the people uh, brought to Jesus all sorts of people, demon-possessed and people with lots of things. And in Mark chapter 1, it actually says the whole town had come to the house. Now, obviously, that's an extreme statement, but it's like saying there's a lot of people there uh, because they're desperate. And in the midst of Jesus has healed a demoniac and he's going to heal a leper, when he had healed the person who had leprosy, it says Jesus gave him a strong warning. Now, if you went to your doctor and your doctor was able to heal you, however they did that, and then the doctor gave you a strong warning which said, don't tell anyone, would you? Be hard, wouldn't it? Be hard not to. But Jesus is very clear. I, the way Mark has written this, well, in this particular occasion, it's a strong warning. Jesus is saying to this healed man from leprosy see that you don't tell anyone do this go straight away to the priest so that they can verify that you are healed you can offer the sacrifices and so on and why am i sending you to the priest because i want your healing to be a testimony to them i want them to realize the cause of your healing i want them to know about me that's what jesus's agenda was so don't tell anyone go straight to the priests 
And I thought, oh, that's what he means. Don't tell anyone until you've been to the priest, then you can tell whoever you like. That's not how the passage is written. That's a strong warning, don't tell anyone. But instead, he was naughty. He went and began to talk freely, spreading the news. The result? Jesus could no longer enter a town freely or openly. He was swamped. Made it very difficult for him to move around. Made it very difficult for him to do the ministry that he had come to do, which is to preach God's word, to seek and to save the lost. That crowded him, so he left. He left Capernaum. And depending whether you read Mark or Luke, he actually crosses the Sea of Galilee, he goes into the, Gadaran, the Gentile territories, and he comes back and he goes around other parts of Capernaum. So time has passed. Whether it's weeks, could be months, we don't know, and commentators don't know. That's the background to the story, and that's where we're up to when Mark tells us this story. Remember, we're going to focus upon the friends and what we learn from them, being connected with a person who is far from Jesus, being committed to bringing them to him and being creative. Sometimes we have to be creative in the way that we do it. <clears throat> Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, Mark's typical way of shortening things and making things far more intense and immediate. A few days later, as I said, could be weeks or even months, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, but he did so quietly. So the hustle and bustle of chapter 1, verse 45, where he couldn't come in because of the crowds, suddenly he's able to come into Capernaum. But the people heard that he had come home. And so the quietness was over. They gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left again, not even outside the door. In the midst of this thing, notice the priority of the Lord Jesus. He is speaking the word to them. The NIV, in fact, translates it as preached. But you might get a misunderstanding if I used... If, if I left the word preach there, you would think he's doing what I'm doing. But he's not. He's sitting amongst the people and he's talking to them. He's having a dialogue. That's the very normal Greek word for having a very ordinary down-to-earth conversation with them. He's talking to them about the things of God, telling them what God is like, like in parables, telling them what God expects of them and so on. He's teaching them about repentance and belief and so on. So he's, that's his priority, to speak the word to them. And this is worth noting, that this is the primary means that God uses to transform people. It's the primary means, God's word, God's truth. It's the truth that sets us free. It's the truth that convicts us of our sin and of our need of a saviour. And Jesus is speaking the word of truth to them. Now, in the city of Capernaum, or the town of Capernaum, some men came to him, bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. Now, Mark will give us details in this story that both Matthew and Luke don't do. All three Gospels refer to this story. And it's interesting, when the Gospel writers are sitting down to make their selection out of all of the hundreds of things that Jesus did, thousands of things, this one makes the cut in three Gospels. But it's Mark who gives us details that Matthew doesn't give us and that Luke doesn't give us. And hence the suggestion is, this is because Mark's Gospel is Peter's Gospel. It's Peter telling the story to his assistant, Mark, as we know from New Testament letters. Um, and so this house is whose house? Simon's house. Yeah. So it's Simon's perspective. Yeah, it wasn't some men, it was four of them. And it was a paralysed man, but they brought him and they carried him and they didn't just remove tiles, as Luke said, they dug through the roof. 
He's got an insight and an understanding. But I want to pause and focus on these guys. So men came to Jesus um, bringing their paralysed friend. They carried him, and there's four of them, one on each corner. So I want us just to focus on them just for a second. That number one, they're connected with him. They know him. We're not given details. There are lots of details left out of this story because, well, we don't, we're curious about it, but we don't need to know it to get the main point. <clears throat> Were these guys relatives? Not told. Were they neighbours? Not told. So I'm going to say they're friends. I don't know that, but that's how I read the passage. I think they're close friends. They're connected with him. Here is a guy who is paralysed. Now, in their world, in their culture, if you had a serious illness, be it leprosy or paralysis or something else wrong with you, what caused it? Sin. I must have done something really bad to be as sick as what I am. They had a direct link between um, sin and sickness. The disciples in John chapter 9 see a blind man and the disciples ask Jesus, so who sinned, this man or his parents? He must have done something wrong or the parents have done something wrong for him to be born blind. It doesn't just happen. There's cause and effect like in the book of Job. Job was a very righteous man whom his friends loved and thought very highly of him until he got sick and then they started accusing him. You must have done something very, very bad and you need to acknowledge that and repent of it. So that's the world this guy grew up in and he's paralysed. So you can imagine the neighbours and society having not much to do with him, and it was a great excuse, it was a great out. If you're being punished for something bad that you have done, therefore I have no obligation or responsibility to help you. I would be interfering in God's judgment in your life if I did that. It was a great excuse. But anyway, the friends saw beyond that somehow. They got to know him, they connected with him, and then they were committed. They came up with the idea. It's not that they were sitting around and they were bored and they one, one day said, gee, let's do something. Oh, Jesus is back in town. Hey, let's take him to Jesus and see what happens. It seems to be far more intentional. They made a decision to do whatever they could to bring their friend to Jesus. It implies they must have had a conviction or an understanding or a hope at least that Jesus would make a difference in this man's life. That's what we need. That's what we should have. <clears throat> Could Jesus make a difference in your life? Could Jesus make a difference in the life of your friends, family, neighbours, relatives? Do you really believe Jesus could make a difference? Well, these guys obviously believed that Jesus could, and so they were intentional, they were committed. Um, it's easy to come up with excuses. It'd be understandable, in fact, if they just treated him as an acquaintance. You know, after all, his condition was permanent. There was nothing we could do about it. And they may have assumed, I doubt it, but they may have assumed it was his own fault, whatever. So we, like them, need to be connected. We need to be aware of the people who are in our circle of influence, the people who are already in relationship with us or people who will soon be in relationship with us. And we need to be committed somehow to carry them towards Jesus. As we've said in other weeks, we need to bless them. And bless stands for, begin with prayer. Pray for them. B-L-E-S-S-L. -S -S -L. Listen to them. Talk to them. Get to know them. Find out what's really going on in their life and where their paralysis is. 
because we could be like the paralyzed man. We're all broken somewhere. None of us are perfect. This guy had a physical problem. You may not have a physical problem. You could have an emotional problem, a relational problem, a fine, whatever problem. We all have issues in our life. We're all broken. So you need to listen. What's going on in the lives of the people around you? What's their stresses? What's their pressures? E. Spend time with them. Have a cup of coffee or tea. Eat with them. Because when you eat with people, things seem to get said. There's more of a relaxed, lengthening time and a process. Just do what comes naturally with them. The next S is to serve them, help them in some way. What can you do to help them? What can you do to help address the issues in their life? What can you do just to help them build a bridge in their life and be concerned for them? You know, whether you want to mow their lawn or give them a lift somewhere or do their shopping or whatever it is. If you're a handyman, maybe you can help out around the home. Um, if they've got kids, maybe you can babysit. The list is endless. Just bless them. And the last S is story. Be prepared to tell your story to them, but also to hear their story. So serve them and listen to them. So here is this man being carried by these four close, connected friends to him, and his two bad legs have now become eight good legs, and his life would never be the same. We need to be a people who are committed to carrying people to Jesus. There's a target and a challenge for us. Who would you identify in your life that you want to say, I want to carry you, I want to influence you towards Jesus? Pray about it. Think about it. See whom God places on your heart. And it's not a, you know, a few days thing. It's not a few weeks thing. It's a, a journey thing. It's going to take a long time. I've heard stories where it's taken 15 years. <clears throat> can take a long time. But if you really believe that Jesus could make a difference in that person's life, be committed to it. That's why God has placed these people around you. That's why you are where you are. And in the process of doing that, you will find, like they did, that sometimes you will need to be creative. So connected, committed. I mean, they carried that guy across town. It would have taken hours. It would have been laborious. And when they got there, they had to demolish a roof, insert the very first ever skylight in human history, and then they had to lower the guy down. That would have been hard work. They had a workout, but they were determined. They were committed because they thought getting him to Jesus is going to make all the difference. And so for us, we need to be creative. We are going to face sometimes obstacles. And when we do, don't find excuses, find solutions. Think outside the box. And certainly digging into a roof is outside the box. So when you go home today, I want you to go to your neighbours and I want you to get on their roof. <laughs> if God leads you that way. I want you to imagine the scene. Often when you read the gospel stories, we aren't given a lot of the details. Just imagine you're there. Imagine, I'm Jesus. That's not hard, I know. But <clears throat> imagine you're in the house and that they're on the roof. What's happening? Jesus is talking. People are listening. People are in the windows, the doorways. There's a line of them outside in the street. This is, there's no room here. They've come with this guy carrying him and the people in the doorway are just looking. They're not moving. They're not letting him in. Nobody's moving. They're jammed in like sardines. So I don't know if they went away or what they did, but eventually it came to them because in flat houses that we have discovered and excavated in Capernaum from that time of the world time, 
Um, houses were built very close together and they were often single storeys and flats, like they are in some parts of the world today. And either on the outside of your house you had a stairway going up or the house next door to you did and so you could go from their roof across to your roof because they were reasonably close. That's what they did. They went up the stairs, crowded down here. Now suddenly, listening to Jesus, you can hear footsteps, maybe voices and footsteps going up the steps and then a possum on the roof, a rat on the roof, or something's on the roof. And so you're still trying to listen to Jesus and suddenly then you hear noises. What, scratching, digging, banging noises, or pulling noises? And, and before long, you maybe can even hear muffled human voices of people are talking up there. So you're still trying to listen to Jesus and suddenly the dust starts falling. And it's falling. I mean, they worked out where Jesus was standing and when they went up the stairs, they went across the top of the roof to basically where Jesus was. Not on top of him, but in front of him. So they were calculating. And so now dust is falling down and falling on people's hair and on their beards and on their clothes. What would you be doing if somebody was on the roof and they started ripping the roof off now? You'd ring, that's right. <laughs> Who would you ring? You'd ring Peter. You might be saying something, you might be um, yelling out something, complaining, because you're trying to listen to Jesus. And there's this dust falling down, and before long it's not just dust, it's bits of clay and branches are coming down, and before long there's a, there's a hole. Now there's a beam of sunlight coming in, and you know when the beam of sunlight, you can see all the dust curling around. And they're not stopping. This is Peter's house, what do you think Peter's doing? What do you think Peter's wife is telling Peter to do? He can't get out. They're crammed in. He's stuck. Is he yelling? Is he shouting? Is Jesus still speaking? Mark doesn't tell us any of this. It's not important. We'd like to know. I'd like to know. I'm just curious. And eventually, between the two rafters, which would have been like split tree trunks or something, there's a gap. And so they're pulling this roof, this compacted clay and straw and branches and all of that, and on top of that, they would have put tiles, so they've removed that, they're digging into this, and some of this stuff is now falling down. And this hole is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so you can't not look up. You'd be watching it, you'd be distracted by it, and suddenly there are four little heads, boom, looking down. And Jesus looks up. And then there's another one. They're talking to somebody else. And before long, the light is filled with his bloke in a mattress, and they're letting him down. They are connected to him and they're committed to getting him to Jesus and they've done it in an incredibly creative way. Think outside the box. How are you going to bring your friends to Jesus? Maybe it won't be through church. Bringing them to church may not be the way. Maybe you've got to go to them and you've got to do something creative. Something that's going to help them encounter Jesus, whatever it is. So they made an opening in the roof they were digging through it. Um, we need to be people who dig holes in roofs. That makes sense? Not literally. We need to be people who are going to do unusual things that are going to help people meet Jesus. May the Lord open our eyes and our ears to be aware of those who are around us and maybe bring others into our sphere of influence that we can bring them to him.
Notice this, when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? Definitely the faith of the four. Isn't that interesting? But their faith could also include the faith of the paralysed man. He never says anything, he never does anything. So Jesus is certainly seeing their faith as the faith of the four. That's an encouraging insight. Your faith matters. God looks for faith and God responds to faith. Your faith matters. That when you pray, if you're a grandparent, and you're praying for your kids and your grandkids, your faith matters. When God sees faith in you, it can make a difference. If you're a parent praying for your prodigal child, your stray child or whatever, keep praying. Don't give up, don't stop. If you're a teenager, a young person, and you're praying for your parents who are going through difficulty, don't stop, pray. You've got friends and their marriage is, you know, struggling and they're thinking about divorce and all the pain and hurt of that, keep praying, don't stop. When God sees faith, he responds. And Jesus certainly did. And the guy gets lowered down right in front of him I don't know if people moved or how they did it or whatever else, but Jesus says amazingly to him, says son in our English translation, it's really a term of affection. Whatever we would say in our culture, friend, mate, your sins are forgiven. Now this is an important, this is why Mark has included the story and that's why Matthew and Luke, because this is the guts of it, this is what's important. So God not only sees their faith, oh, let me say this before I go on to that, um, we can't change people, but God can. If you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. We can't change people, but God can. Our problem is that we want God to love them and we want to change them. We want them to do what we want them to do. God's problem is He wants us to love them so He can change them. Let God be God. Let God do the changing. You do the loving. God wants you to love them. Now, this will stretch you, and I'm not wanting to offend anybody, but I am wanting to stretch you. As you follow Jesus, he wants you to love your homosexual colleagues and neighbours. He wants you to love them. Until they meet Jesus, until they know Jesus, forget about trying to change them. Forget about trying to correct them. He does that. We love them. Do that with your transgender friends or the people struggling with it. Love them. You're not to judge them. You're to care for them. You're to bring them to do, let him change them. Yeah. And Jesus says to this guy, your sins are forgiven. This is the greatest miracle, not what's coming, the physical thing. This is the greatest miracle of all, forgiveness of sins. Because it's our greatest need. Sin's, sin's penalty separates us from God. Sin removes us from his presence. And Jesus came to address that very issue. He spoke one sentence. Your sins are forgiven and suddenly heaven receives another sinner into the family. The greatest miracle of all is one that no one can see. Not initially. They'll see the consequences of it eventually. And that's true in this story as well. But Jesus says this and does this. I'll come back to that because the way that is, what Jesus has said, you need to think about. He's not saying, I am declaring your sins forgiven. 
He is saying, I am forgiving your sins. Your sins are forgiven. The teachers of the law who were sitting there, scribes and Pharisees, we know from the other Gospels, were thinking to themselves. Where are they thinking? In here. They're not saying it. They're thinking it. I want you to draw attention to that because this gives us an insight into who is Jesus. They were thinking to themselves and what they're saying are questions. Who does this fellow, why does he talk like this? He's blaspheming? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The bit that I've highlighted in blue is correct. Their theology is correct. God is the only one who can forgive sins but their conclusion is wrong because they're not being logical. They're not being reasonable in the way they're reasoning because there are two alternatives. Um, if only God forgives sins, true, then if Jesus forgives sins, therefore he must either be God or he's blaspheming. That's reasonable and logical. They jump to the conclusion of saying he's blaspheming because he can't be God. It's a pretty disposition to that false conclusion. Correct theology, wrong conclusion. Jesus says to them, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts, so he says to them, why are you thinking those things? Satan can't do that. Satan can't read your mind. Jesus can. He knows what you're thinking, he knows what you're feeling, he knows what you're stressed about, what you're anxious about, he knows you. Now, this is a wonderful passage in terms of Jesus' God's attitude, Jesus' attitude to lost people, even critics. Immediately, Jesus knew this is what's going on. So he says to them, challenge, he brings it out into the open. He's not going to leave it all hidden up. Why are you thinking like that? Challenge, which is easier to say um, to the paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. Let's do a vote. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, that's easy to say. Hands up. A uh, dozen. Hands down. Put up your hands for it, get up, take up your mat and walk. That's easy to say. Nobody. Oh, one, two, only two. The reality is, they're both easy to say. You can say them. What does Jesus mean? Which is easier to say that can be established, which can be proven, which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven. Are they? I don't know. You can't see it. He said it. Is it true? Is it not true? I don't know. It's easy to say. What about rise, get up, take up your mat and walk? If it happens, well, if it doesn't happen, charlatan see what you say doesn't happen so what jesus is saying is while it might be easy to say both the same the hardest thing is to say something which can be verified immediately that's the hard thing and so jesus oh this is if you've never noticed this note this verse 10 jesus says to these critics but that you may know i want you to understand who i am that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Why is Jesus doing this? Because he's trying to reach lost people, not just paralysed people, not just people rejected by society, but even religious critics. 
right in front of him. He's trying to reach out to them and challenge them in their conclusions. He's the master chess player. When that man got lowered through the roof and he's paralysed, what would his four friends and what was everybody else, and what was he probably hoping for? Physical healing. What does Jesus do? Well, he does the bigger miracle, the harder miracle. Your sins are forgiven. When Jesus did that, my wife asked me a question on the way here this morning. She said, do you think Jesus would have healed him if the critics didn't object? And I said, well, my perception of the passage is he would have because what Jesus was doing, the master chess player, in verse 5, when he says to the guy, son, your sins are forgiven you, he has moved a chess piece, sunk into place. And now he's waiting for the anticipated response that he knows that's coming. You can't do that. That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Yeah, exactly, Jesus says. God is the only one who can forgive sins. Watch this, which is easier to say, that or this. So that you know that I have authority to forgive sins, not to declare sin is forgiven, but to forgive sins, and therefore the Son of Man is God. Turns to the paralyzed man, and he says to him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Stand up, Jesus says, to a paralyzed man. That's cruel isn't it? You wouldn't say to a paraplegic, stand up. But when Jesus issues a command, he also gives enablement. That which he requires, he provides. When he asks you to do something, don't be like Moses and come up with excuses and don't reason, I can't do that, I, I don't have the ability to do that, because where he commands you to do something, he will provide, he will enable you to do it. He's commanding you to do it because he wants to stretch you. He wants to grow you, to rely and depend on him. I've, I haven't said this for years, but that I do believe this, that God will lead us in our lives right to the edge of a cliff, to a situation. And when you get here, what will he do? Oh, he'll turn us around and take us away from danger. No. He'll push and you will fall so that he will catch you, so that you will learn to trust him. He does that all the time. But what happens for us is we get into situations like that and we get scared and we back away. And then he brings stuff into our life, so he'll bring us back into this situation until we learn this lesson. Said to the paralyzed man, stand up, get up your mat and go home. This, <clears throat> let me read you this. So Jesus' chest move was that. He deliberately said, son, your sins are forgiven because he wanted to exercise grace to him. But he also wanted to reach the critics, the people in the crowd. He wanted them to understand his identity. So he says, now, stand up. There's the physical healing. That was delayed in order to communicate this incredible truth, who Jesus is, his identity. So he got up, went home, in full view of them all. And they were absolutely amazed. The crowd that refused him entrance parts like the Red Sea to make way for his exit. The mat that he carried, that carried him in, he now carried out. Once that mat was a sign of his sickness, now it's a sign that he's being cured. Mark doesn't tell us, it's another one of those curious things, is how do you think the five departed? How do you think what happened when they came down the stairs? High fives, laughing, rejoicing, tears of joy. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and what did Jesus say? What did you think of that? Go ahead, deny that. I just did the impossible. 
but it's visible so that you could see it. So that what I said, which was invisible, is also true. Go ahead, Jesus says. What did the, uh, the paralyzed man say when he got home? I don't know if he was married or not. He probably wasn't. Probably still lived with his parents. wonder what he said to them. He had a story to tell. So do the four. They've got a story to tell. So do you. You have a story to tell. And like Pastor Charlie was saying in the prayer meetings, when you share stories about what God is doing, whether it's healing or it's dramatic things or neighbor conduct or whatever it is, you encourage others, but you reaffirm for yourself that God is at work and he wants to use you in his process. Just as their faith is seen in their actions, and just as our faith is seen in our actions, our behavior, our words, our attitudes, so the reality of what Jesus said is seen in the effects that it causes. When you look at the Gospels, Jesus says to a storm, be still. And it is, it obeys him. Jesus says to the demons, be gone. And they are. To the leper, be healed. To the paralyzed man, get up. To the blind, be seen. To the dead, get up. Lazarus, come here. When Jesus speaks, things happen. Because he is the son of God. He is God the Son. He is Sovereign Lord. That's who he is. That's why Mark tells us this story. The passage is really about who is Jesus. But I'm wanting us to learn from the four friends. So let's apply it to both. The greatest miracle of all is the one that we can't see. Has Jesus ever said to you, your sins are forgiven? And if you've never experienced that and you want to, Certainly, come and talk to us. Because while we can't forgive sins, we can declare that your sins are forgiven if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. If you receive him as your saviour, then we have the authority to say on the basis of what he promises that your sins are forgiven. But if you need to be forgiven, and we all do, you need to come to Jesus. And you need to come to Jesus on earth, in this life, because there is no second chance after this life. So what about you? Where do you stand with Jesus? Still on the way? Still finding out about him? That's good. Keep coming. Are you in the crowd? You're close. You're listening. You're learning. He certainly wants you to know the truth. And he will checkmate you. He will put you in a situation where you can't deny the reality of who he is and what he has done. Or maybe some of you or some of your friends or family are already part of the critics. They've looked at Jesus. It doesn't make sense to them and they've rejected him. Pray for them. Jesus was concerned so that you may know. Just as he is concerned for them, don't give up on them. God hasn't. As long as they draw breath, he can save them, he can change them. God changes people. We love them. The greatest miracle of all. <clears throat> Let's get connected with our friends. Let's think about, is there anyone we know who is paralysed by sin, so to speak? What do we need to do to help them make, take steps toward Jesus? Wouldn't it be great next Sunday if we saw people dragging people into church who don't want to come? Wouldn't that be wonderful? No, I don't mean that. So get connected this week. Think about it. Pray about it. We've been talking about this now for six weeks. 
Increase your awareness of those who are around you. Where are they with God? And ask God to help you to see and to open the door and think about what visible things you can do. And let me say this for all of us. Just like these guys got to the door and nobody made way for them, let us learn a negative lesson. Make sure we're not a hindrance when others make the effort to bring their friends to Jesus. Give up your favourite seat. Encourage and accept all comers. I've only ever had it once in my life as a pastor, once that I know of. At Ingleburn, previous church, they had pews. Uh, we eventually changed that, but we had wooden pews, which are great for scramming, uh, cramming numbers in. <clears throat> but one lady always sat in one pew, right there where Peter is sitting, around about there in the middle of the church. She was an elderly lady. She came to church one Sunday and somebody else, another couple, a new couple, first time in church, was sitting where she was sitting. And in God's goodness and grace, guess what she did? She went up to them and she stood next to them and she said, you were sitting in my chair. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? Wouldn't it? What we ought to do is, hey Pete, we should get rid of all these chairs. We should buy much more Comfortable chairs, padded chairs with metal. Everybody agree? You have to buy your own chair and then buy another chair for somebody else and then you bring it and then you can say, you're sitting in my chair. But until then, don't be a hindrance to people coming to faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, just as you sent Jesus into our world to save us, so now you are sending us into our world, to reach those who are in relationship with us. Lord, open our eyes, move in our hearts, give us a desire to think about how we can connect and be committed, and if necessary, being creative in how we can bring our friends to Jesus. We ask and pray in his name. Everybody said? Amen.